we just have a couple of quick announcements. Our Heart of Meditation retreat is fast approaching. It'll run from the 30th of June to the 4th of July. Swamiji says that when the mind is still, the self shines forth. So this retreat is a really great opportunity mid-year to refresh your practice and connect with the wisdom and inspiration of the self. There'll be talks in the evening from Guruji, Devi Ma will give daytime talks and lead meditations, and there will also be contributions from ashram senior teachers. The retreat will culminate in the half-day intensive on the 4th of July dedicated to Shaktipa awakening, the transmission of spiritual energy which lies at the heart of our tradition. This will be an online retreat and to register, go to satsanglive.com.au. Also, an Empowered Teaching Masterclass is being run by Nataraz Chaitanya, commencing Sunday 11th of July and running for three consecutive weeks. It's a fantastic opportunity for yoga teachers to build their skills and bring their teaching to the next level. You can book your place by going to the ashram.com.au. So now we're going to be doing some mantras and I'll hand over to Guruji. You've been, you've been chanting goddess mantras for the sake of humanity, the sake of everyone suffering through this uh, pandemic. Uh, and so we're going to chant 54 repetitions of the goddess mantra, which will... Uh, appear on your screen. <clears throat> and uh, all these are bija mantras or uh, mantras which symbolize the various deities, goddesses, aspects of the, of the one goddess, uh, Saraswati and Durga and uh, Lakshmi. Uh, and so we salute that great energy and we pray that uh, relief for all the suffering people and the cure of this uh, plague that's among us and everyone else who is suffering in every way. We uh, do that. We begin with Gajananam and then we'll do 54 repetitions of the mantra. <clears throat>
Welcome, everyone, to tonight's program. <clears throat> and I always like to begin by quoting my guru, Swami Muktananda, who always began by saying in Hindi, Sabko varisan mane kesat pemse ardik swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that that's the essence of spirituality, to welcome another person with love. Love, of course, is the center. Love is the great uh, curing power, and it's the great healing power, and it's the essence of spirituality. So in that spirit, I welcome you all. And uh, before I begin, I have to uh, welcome one person who's done something very good, and we have a mantra club here, and then in the mantra club we have the Millionaires Club, those who have repeated the mantra a million times. And we're getting, uh, we ha we're getting some multi-millionaires, but we've got a new millionaire tonight, and so I want to acknowledge Baladev. Come on, Baladev. <laughs> a new millionaire. <clears throat> it says he's pronounced the mantra 900 times correctly and 75,000 times slightly incorrectly, so you'll have to do some more. <laughs> very good, no, it's a very good, it's a very good um, achievement. <clears throat> mantra is a great uh, method of practice and of... You my name wrong. What's that? You my name wrong. Oh, I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> They did it. <laughs> so satsang is a time uh, of celebration. Uh, and to me, it's a celebration of great beings. The great revelation of my life that happened when I met the American yogi Ramdas was that great beings exist here and now, not just in some semi-mythical uh, time a thousand or two thousand years ago, uh, but here and now. And when I heard that, I, I thought that the one thing I want to do is to meet such a great being and to study with him or her and learn what was to be learned because I knew there was an esoteric knowledge, a hidden knowledge that wasn't taught in universities uh, and it wasn't taught in any conventional uh, educational system that I knew of, but this knowledge was the key to happiness and the key to joy and the key to the meaning of life. And I knew that it resided with these great beings. So in satsang, uh, we celebrate the great beings. I had the good fortune to meet uh, quite a few of them, uh, but I also became uh, interested in the teachings of others who passed on. The first one that I came across in my quest uh, was the, the uh, 
Turkish-Armenian yogi, man of great mystery, and he was George Gurchief. <clears throat> um, and tonight, we're going to celebrate him and his teachings. Uh, he was born somewhere around 1870. He died in 1949. Uh, he was one of the really great spiritual teachers in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, he studied in the East. He was very mysterious in the way he talks about his past, but he went to the East. Uh, he studied with Sufi masters in Iran and as far as India. Uh, <clears throat> and um, around 1923, he traveled to New York with a, a group of people. During the Russian Revolution, he traveled, uh, he escaped all that, and he, he gathered a bunch of disciples, and they, they uh, eventually got to... Europe, and he started a, a, an ashram or a center in uh, near Paris in Fontainebleau. Uh, and then he traveled to America, and he gave demonstration lectures. I'm going to talk about one of them tonight. <clears throat> and uh, he um, he acquired quite a few followers of uh, among the uh, the rich and famous and the uh, intelligentsia at the time. Uh, his basic teaching was man is a machine. Man is a machine. I always love that phrase, man is a machine. That is, uh, that we don't really have choice, that we're mechanical, that we're the product of our conditioning, our culture, our parents, and so on, and we really just automatically uh, reproduce reactions based on on that upbringing, uh, and that we can get, acquire cho choice, we can acquire freedom, metaphysical freedom, but only through inner work, only through working on ourselves. In other words, what we would call sadhana, spiritual practice. Uh, <clears throat> so he called it the work, and that work begins with self-observation, which is to, to Examine yourself objectively uh, and to see what's really there, not what you think is there or what you'd like to be there, whatever your public persona is, but what's actually there. How do you actually react to things? What are your real emotions? A lot of things come up that we don't want to admit. Jealousy comes up. Anger comes up. Fear comes up. We don't want to admit some of these things, and yet they keep coming up. So the first step in Gurdjieff's system was to observe yourself clinically and objectively and see how you react different things. Uh, and the second part of it was self-remembering, which is very much like Baba's uh, meditation on the self, where Mana Maharshi's hold on to the I thought, or, uh, the Sargadatas hold on to the I, and Ramanas hold on to the I, I, the I consciousness. And so always remember the self. Put yourself in the picture. Usually we forget that we're in the picture. We just observe others. So he says, focus on that too. <clears throat> and then uh, he said that 
Through that practice, we build chemicals that increase our consciousness. Now, I always thought of that as metaphoric, but it's actually true that in doing this work, uh, we, we expand our shakti, our inner shakti. We grow something inside that changes our chemistry and changes our, our awareness. Uh, he also uh, is very famous for teaching what he called the fourth way. The other three ways were the conventional yogic ways of um, uh, the way of the body, or hatha yoga, the way of the emotions, or the heart, or bhakti yoga, devotional yoga, uh, and the way of the intellect, uh, or jnana yoga. He called these three things uh, the bodily yoga, he called the way of the fakir. A fakir is uh, an Eastern yogi who you know, lies on beds of nails and uh, uh, you know, does austerities and so on, physical, physical activity, physical yoga, like hatha yoga. <clears throat> and then uh, he called the second one the way of the, way of the monk, that's devotional. I guess he had in mind the kind of Christian monks who practice devotion. Uh, and so that was bhakti yoga. And then the way of the yogi he called yana yoga, where you use your intellect to uh, attain. But he said his way was the fourth way, which he called the way of the sly man. And actually what he was teaching there was a kind of shavism because the way of the sly man was, was this yoga was completely invisible to other people. No one knows when the sly man is practicing. He doesn't uh, have to go to a, to a cave and to dress in a certain uniform and to wear a certain kind of beard and wear a turban and say, I'm a yogi. He could just be looking ordinary, but inside he's on fire with yoga, he's practicing inside. And, and, the, and the way of the sly man makes use of everything that happens in his life. He doesn't have to have special circumstances, but everything that happens, he turns towards the self, he turns towards God. This is the way of uh, the sly man. <clears throat> so this was uh, Gurdjieff. One of his great methods of his, uh, his teaching was what he called the movements, we would call dance steps, <clears throat> esoteric dancing. We're going to see an example of that tonight. And when he came and did demonstrations in, the, in America, in the West, um, he, he did these, he showed off these dance steps that caused quite a, a stir. Two other people that you, you have to know about for tonight. One is uh, a man named C.S. Knopf. Oh, we have another picture of Gurdjieff? Let's see the other picture of Gurdjieff. This is the young Gurdjieff, young and vital, truly a man of mystery. He was born in eastern Turkey of uh, uh, Greek and uh, Turkish uh, parentage. Now let's see Not. That's the only picture we could find of uh, C.S. Not, an Englishman. <clears throat> he was born in 1887, died in 1978, uh, so pretty recent, lived to about 90. He was an English author, 
and publisher, and he wrote a, a really good book, two good books about Gurdjieff, one called The Teachings of Gurdjieff and then Further Teachings of Gurdjieff. And a lot of what I'm uh, going to share tonight comes from his not book. He was also an associate of the second man, or third man, who is <clears throat> Alfred Richard Orage. I think he was called Orage, but everybody called it Orage, so he became French. He's actually an Englishman. Um, <clears throat> he was born 1873, uh, and he died in 1934, 61 years old. Orage was a, a very influential uh, English literary figure. He edited the, what was called the New Age magazine. Before there was a New Age, there was this New Age magazine. And this magazine helped f uh, found the modernist literary movement. You know, you may have heard of uh, that modernism began around the, the holy year of modernist literature is 1922, exactly, uh, with the publication of uh, James Joyce's Ulysses and a number of other things, and uh, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, um, Fitzgerald, uh, Hemingway, uh, and uh, uh, who did I mention at the beginning? <clears throat> anyway, uh, Joyce, Beckett, so on. Uh, so he was a very influential figure. He had this magazine. He knew all these people. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but he also had a spiritual side to him. In his early years, he studied Plato intensely. And then he became a student of Nietzsche, the German philosopher. And, you know, you know Nietzsche is often... Uh, uh, blamed for some of Hitler's ideas, you know, the Ubermensch, the Superman. Uh, but um, he thought of the Ubermensch, Orage thought of it, as a spiritual Superman, that he was talking about a, a higher consciousness. So Nietzsche was using a metaphor of spiritual growth. And so he studied Nietzsche for a while. After he finished with Nietzsche, he became, he started studying the Mahabharat. And he became a theosophist. So he'd done a lot of spiritual work on the side. Meanwhile, he was this major literary figure. And then finally, he met Gurdjieff, and he gave it all up. Uh, and he, he left the magazine. He left his literary life. And he went to Fontainebleau and studied with uh, Gurdjieff. And then Gurdjieff sent him to America. And he kind of ran a center, a Gurdjieff center in America. Um, <clears throat> later on, uh, he had a falling out with Gurdjieff, uh, but that's a whole other story. So we're going to hear a lot about Orage tonight. So we begin with um, Gurdjieff's, let's see, have you seen everything? Yes. <clears throat> so we're going to begin with Gurdjieff's trip to, uh, to um, America. 1923, 1924, I'm trying to find, uh, yes. So he came, he came with a group of people, uh, and he gave a, a demonstration at a hall called the Leslie Hall, uh, somewhere in New York. Um, 
And according to Knott, Knott said the, the seats were free. He, he offered this free demonstration. And it was about half filled uh, with what Knott calls, what Knott calls interesting people, interesting people. That means those who, who write, paint, or compose, or who talk about such things, the intelligentsia. So all the, uh, the glitterati of New York were interested um, and this program, Orage was the MC, and he introduced a program of sacred dances. You said sacred dances, dervish dances, and sacred gymnastics. Isn't that wonderful stuff? Sacred gymnastics, which he, uh, he said are still practiced in the East. And these dances create a harmonious development of thinking, feeling, and doing. And Gurdjieff's uh, center in, in, um, in uh, near Paris was called the Center for the Harmonious Development of Man. And what that meant, harmonious development, meant that thinking, feeling, doing, these three aspects that we, were all, we are all thinking, feeling, doing creatures. We have a, a, a vital center at the navel, an emotional center at the heart and an intellectual center in the third eye. And um, usually we're more developed in one than the other, and some of them are underdeveloped. And so the, the goal of, of practice is to bring these three into harmony. <clears throat> so these are the three. We call them solid, vital, and peculiar here. And the Shiva process does the same thing. It brings in emotional balances emotional intellect, and then you have to act on that. Uh, anyway, this program happened. It was a very long program. Uh, these days, programs are not that long, although I've been to programs in India that go on for hours and hours. Um, but uh, this was a very long program with two intermissions, and there are many different things happen. Uh, for example, one of the demonstrations was called a pilgrimage measuring the way of one's length. And that meant uh, fakirs in India and other places, um, and in Buddhist tradition too, go on a pilgrimage in which they pranam the whole way. In other words, they, they bow, they, they go completely, bow straight out, they call it danda pranam, like a stick. And then they get up, and where their 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 hands touch, then they they bow again at that point. And so they bow the whole way; they cover the whole path um, by bowing. Uh, <clears throat> so they did a demonstration of that. So somebody would come out and 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 do that method. So that was one. Uh, later in the program, Gurdjieff himself came out, and he. He led the stop exercise, which is fascinating. Ruspensky writes about it in, uh, in Search of the Miraculous, in which at, at, at an, any moment, the master would scream out, stop! And everyone had to freeze completely. In whatever posture you were in, and then you would examine every, you know, your tensions in the body, everything. So you had to be very conscious. Uh, you couldn't be smoking a cigarette, for example, 
Because if you'd inhale and you said stop, you'd be in trouble. <clears throat> so you had to be conscious that, you know, stop could come at any time. That was one of the exercises. <clears throat> and Knott was very impressed uh, and moved both by Gurdjieff himself and the atmosphere of the event because uh, it seems from his writing that he must have gotten Shaktipat that evening because uh, uh, he was stirred. He said the atmosphere is extraordinary and, and he couldn't stop thinking about uh, the demonstration afterwards. And he said that he knew that night that he had found what he'd always been looking for. <clears throat> and uh, anyway, let's, let's just get a sample. It's always fun to see the Gurdjieff dancing. So here's a short sample. Uh, now, he, one of the things not said is that all the, these intelligentsia, none of them could agree to put this in a category. They couldn't put in any category known of dance, even if all the dance that's been developed, modern dance and hip hop, doesn't fit anything that you could ever think of. And they're very strange movements, and these movements were meant to destroy old patterns and to unite all the, the three centers together in some way <clears throat> and reintegrate it. But it's certainly a unique uh, method of dancing, which certainly caught the attention of people. So you're going to see two little bits. Um, I don't know what the first one's called, but it has a bunch of dancers who are doing mechanical movements, like robots, like symbolizing, I guess, modern society. And then one guy who is kind of a crazy person who's wandering around the stage, flopping around like this. And I guess that demonstrates that you know, you know people are insane in the middle of all this uh, mechanical authoritarianism. But you can figure that out for yourself. Uh, and the second bit is also wonderful uh, movement. So just enjoy. It's only a couple of minutes. The second one, they're shouting out something.
wonderful is that? It's absolutely unique, isn't it? <laughs> and it's humorous also. <clears throat> All right, so then uh, this is from Knott, uh, the reaction to the demonstration. <clears throat> Knott writes, for a day and a half, the New York papers gave a good deal of space to the demonstration. One of the baser sort of Sunday papers devoted two pages to it with pictures and fantastic captions. An article was headed, The Great Harmonizer Tunes Up. Another giving a supposed description of life at the Priore, which is Gurdjieff's Institute in France, <clears throat> told how the pupils would gather on the Great Lawn at midnight and begin a wild dance and at its height, Gurdjieff himself would appear walking among them and calling out, dance, dance, dance to freedom. <laughs> it sounds like Osho, doesn't it? This is, not, this is complete fabrication. <clears throat> he says, there are always journalists who will drag the noblest ideas in the mire to provide a sensation for the Sunday reader. Fortunately, we don't have journalists like that any more do we? <laughs> but the sensational articles did not prevent the succeeding demonstrations from being packed to capacity by really thoughtful people. So he, uh, he got a lot of publicity and the next demonstrations were filled. Uh, everywhere among people who were doing things, as they say, or discussing anything, the subject of conversation became have you seen the Gurdjieff dancing? Some said pupils were, the pupils were hypnotized, others that they were browbeaten <laughs> because they never smiled. <clears throat> no one was having satisfaction of explaining to others what it was all about. This annoyed some of the intelligentsia who would have sneered had it not been for the high standing of Gurdjieff's older pupils. Oraj had an international literary reputation uh, Mr. DeSaltzman uh, knew more about stage uh, lighting and stage sets than anybody in the Western world. De Hartman was a musician of the first rank, and Dr. Sternoval had a high reputation in Russia as a psychoanalyst. Some said there must be something in the system which constrains such varied talents to follow Gurdjieff. On the other hand, a man from London reading of the new age said to me, isn't it a pity to see a man with Orage's reputation and gifts giving up his literary life in London to follow a charlatan? So, as you know, the culture is uh, very skeptical about such things. Now this is uh, uh, about Knott's first meeting with Gurdjieff, which was underwhelming, shall we say. 
He says, my first personal contact with Gurdjieff took place a day or two after the demonstration. <clears throat> he was working in a bookstore in, in Midtown Manhattan. Later, he became part owner of a bookstore there. <clears throat> uh, he said, Orage and, and Dr. Starnavo came in. At once, I sensed that I was a mere youth in the presence of these adult men. He sensed that they had some spiritual attainment. Very soon, I made another and more striking comparison. Gurdjieff arrived, very impressive in a black coat, wearing a fur hat. With a twinkle in his eyes, he began to joke with the others. Then he walked around, and I found him standing beside me. I looked up, and I was struck by the expression of his eyes with the depths of with the depths of understanding and compassion in them. He radiated tremendous power and being, such as I had never in all my travels met in any person. And I sensed that compared with him, both Dr. Sterneval and Orage were as younger men to an elder. So he saw that he was even beyond them and his beingness. I was a little uneasy and as was my habit, tried to make conversation. Picking up a copy of Ospensky's Tertium Organum, and this is a book that Ospensky, Ospensky, many of you know, was, was a disciple of Gurdjieff's, uh, and, but he, he was also a noted philosopher and mathematician, and he'd written this book before he'd met Gurdjieff. He was also a mystic. Uh, so he, he picked up a copy, which I tried in vain to read. I said, have you read this, Mr. Gurdjieff? He made a gesture with his hand and said, very difficult. I thought he meant it was difficult for him. I then said, Mr. Gurdjieff, I should like if you have room to go and work at your institute. He replied, room enough, but also necessary to think about life. Many young men at institute study for life. One will be engineer. He studied to get paper. Very necessary in life have paper. What does he mean by paper? He's a degree, a diploma. <laughs> so he, put, he poured cold water on his plan. He said, you go, uh, reminds me of a uh, thing uh, <clears throat> when I saw that, uh, a young kid come to Baba. I think I wrote about it. And uh, uh, he said, Baba, I want to attain realization. And Baba said, how old are you? He says, 18. He says, why aren't you in school, Baba said. You know, not like, what a great seeker you are. Of course you'll attain, my son. Why aren't you at school? <laughs> he says, this was the only occasion on which I try to talk books with Gurdjieff. <laughs> so, <clears throat> now here's, here's one. This is one that has several personal resonances with me, if you'll indulge me. Are you ready? I'll tell you each one. <clears throat> not writes, I was disappointed that only one of my friends among the intellectuals from Croton showed interest in the ideas of the Institute. So we all have that experience of being disappointed, perhaps, once we attain, we come to the path that certain friends who we place great value in, or family members, don't relate to it. This is a universal experience, <clears throat> because you never can tell who's going to be spiritually open and who won't. They may be very advanced intellectually, but not open to spirituality, it's what happens. 
So he had a lot of friends, intellectuals, from Croton. First point is Croton is a, a city in Westchester County, north of, of uh, Manhattan, where my uncle uh, bought a house and we used to go for Thanksgiving to Croton all the time. <clears throat> and um, I'll, I'll go on. He says, the exception, there was only one of his friends, the exception was Boardman Robinson, the artist. Boardman, now this one's really close to home because Boardman Robinson was my father's mentor in art school with the Art Student League. And Bob, uh, Pop always talked to me about Boardman Robinson and he worshiped him and so on. And I was blown away when I saw that Boardman Robinson was a Gurdjieffian. And so I said to Pop, I said, Pop, did you know that Boardman Robinson was a Gurdjieffian? And he had no idea. I showed it to him and he just looked blankly. <clears throat> so I figured this, is, this was before Pop studied with Boardman Robinson, but maybe Boardman Robinson thought Pop won't be interested. <laughs> Later on he'll get interested, but not now. <clears throat> Anyway, these were, all these intellectuals in Croton were lefties, left-wingers. And he writes, uh, the left was vaguely hostile, but the left is always opposed to ideas which have as their aim the changing of the inner state of man. They want to change outer conditions. Change the form of government and all will be well, is what they say. The best is yet to be. Happiness for them is in the future. I speak of this because up to this time I'd lived among the intelligentsia and believed as they did and was on the way to becoming a fossilized intellectual identified without worn ideas, he said. <laughs> so that was very close to home. We had Croton, Borden Robinson, and lefties. <clears throat> so <clears throat> Ben Oraj was told not about uh, his first experience, his first experience with Gurdjieff, and his experience of going to the prairie. I thought this is interesting. Oraj says, uh, after Gurdjieff's first visit, uh, I knew that Gurdjieff was the teacher. Eventually, I sold the New Age, sold the magazine, gave up my literary life, and going to Ospensky's groups, he used to go to Ospensky's groups, but he saw that Gurdjieff was the, the real guru, and went to Fontainebleau. My first weeks at the Prairie were weeks of real suffering. I was told to dig, and as I had no real exercise for years, I suffered so much physically that I'd go back to my room, a sort of cell, and literally cry with fatigue. No one, not even Gurdjieff, came near me. I asked myself, is this what I've given up my whole life for? At least I had something then. <laughs> now what have I? When I was in the very depths of despair, feeling I could go on no longer, I vowed to make extra effort. And just then something changed in me. This is what Gurdjieff would call super effort to go deeper and to make a resolve, to have real desire to walk the path. And you get rewards then. And you call on something deeper. 
Soon I began to enjoy the hard labor, and a week later, Gurdjieff came to me and said, Now, Oraj, I think you dig enough. Let's go to cafe and drink coffee. <laughs> so he passed his test. From that moment, things began to change. This was my first initiation. The former things had passed away. And Nat says, isn't the prairie an esoteric school? And Oraj said, it is. It's what, uh, what Ospensky called a mystery school, a mystery school where the teaching of the path of yoga, inner path, the esoteric path, the interior path, the mystical path is taught. He said, yes, it is probably the only one in the Western world today, but a person can live at the prayeré and be quite unaware of it. You get from the prayeré just as much as you give in work on yourself. That is according to real effort. There are people living there now to whom the place is no more than a maison de santé. It's a, a health resort. It's just a health resort. So it's true of, uh, of, of yoga that you get what you put into it. It reflects your own attitude, you know. <clears throat> so now a little bit about uh, meeting. How are we doing? Good? Enjoying this? Okay, so now uh, a couple of vignettes. Not, not says, uh, this is in New York in 1924, during Gurdjieff's stay there. He would go and hold court at a restaurant in Midtown, and he'd be drinking coffee all afternoon. People would come to see him, and he'd chat with them, and so on. Then he'd have different programs at night. He said, almost every evening, Gurdjieff met groups of people. He did not give lectures in the ordinary way, but informal talks consisting chiefly of questions and answers. Once at a meeting in Jane Heap's apartment, I was having difficulty in keeping my attention on the talk. By the way, Jane Heap, uh, you remember, uh, what's his name? Fritz. Fritz Peters. Uh, she was, he was one of the guardians of uh, Fritz. <clears throat> anyway, so um, I had trouble keeping my attention on the talk. Why would a young man lose attention on the talk? A girl. <laughs> it wandered continually to a good-looking young woman sitting not far from me. And I had a shock when, in answer to someone's question, Gurdjieff began to speak about sleep and attention, indicating me, he said, this young man, for example, has no attention. He's more than three-quarters asleep. I woke from my daydream and began to make no, take notice, he says. That's one story. <clears throat> Another one. This is some question answers and some of the teaching. About the, the middle of January 1924, at a meeting in the O'Neill studio, I don't know where that would be, I arrived to find a number of people already sitting around. The meeting was timed for nine, but it was almost ten before we saw Gurdjieff. He came in from another room wearing a gray suit and an old pair of carpet slippers and was holding a large baked potato. 
Everybody became frigidly silent. He sat on the edge of the low platform facing us and began to eat. <laughs> he seemed to be playing a part, that of a benevolent middle-aged gentleman at a party. <laughs> he made a joke, and the rather tense atmosphere disappeared in an appeal of laughter. After a few remarks, his expression changed, and he said, perhaps someone have a question. He's very uh, fascinating and humorous, Kirja. <clears throat> the first question was, would you explain about the law of three? So one of Gurdjieff's main principles was that uh, there are three forces that work in every event that happens, three forces. And um, here's what he said here. Gurdjieff said, take a simple thing, bread. You have flour, you have water, you mix. A third thing is necessary, heat. Then have bread. So in everything, three forces, three principles are necessary. Then you have result. Of course, we will talk about in some future one about the three forces, first force, second force, third force. Usually, uh, the simplest understanding is first force is the force that initiates something. You could say it's the force of desire. I want to do something. And as soon as you want to do something, immediately the obstacle comes up. All the reasons that it's difficult to do what you want. So that's called second force. In the ashram, what we call second force is whenever any block that arises. And the evidence is, is inside of us, too. We feel tensions in various centers. We know there's second force, some frustration, some block. And then third force is the force that harmonizes these two and allows movement to take place. <clears throat> so those are the three forces. Another said, it seems a rather silly question asked, but what would you say is the difference between men and women? So, trigger alert. <clears throat> I think this is okay, all right? Gurdjieff says, in general, men have minds more developed, women feelings more developed. Is that politically correct or not? Probably not. <clears throat> men should learn to feel more, women to think more. You must think, feel, and sense a thing before it become real to you. Not PC. What, not PC? Okay. Okay. It just it may be true, but not be PC. <laughs> <laughs> About sensing, you do not know what sensing is. You often mistake sensing for feeling or feeling for sensing. Now he's talking about uh, about the difference between sensation and feeling. And some people can't distinguish, I, I don't know if he talks about thinking and feeling, they can't tell the difference. When they have a feeling, they think it's a thought, or they have a thought, they think it's a feeling. But they're two separate things, so we have to learn to distinguish them so we can work on them. He says, you must learn to know, uh, you must learn to know when you're thinking and when you're feeling, and when you're sensing. These three processes are necessary and much work is necessary for understanding. <clears throat> What's politically correct about that? There's no difference. Is that the, the politically correct? 
It's individual, okay. <laughs> it's individual. You can't make any generalizations. Okay, but what about generalizations? That it's generalizations that are not politically correct, right? <laughs> okay. Oh, here's right away. I can see a politically incorrect thing in this last one. <laughs> a woman novelist said to Gurdjieff at one meeting. Afro-American Jewish uh, homosexual woman novelist. <laughs> now, can you say a woman novelist? <laughs> what? A novelist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Anyway, never mind. <clears throat> a woman novelist said to Gurdjieff at one meeting, "I sometimes feel I'm more conscious when I'm writing." Is this so, or do I imagine it? <laughs> he replied, you live in dreams, and you write about your dreams. Much better, much better for you if you were to scrub one floor consciously than to write a hundred books as you do now. <clears throat> That's notable, isn't it? About self-remembering, he said. A man cannot remember himself because he tries to do so with his mind. At least in the beginning, self-remembering begins with self-sensing. It must be done through the instinctive moving center and the emotional center. So it's not a mental thing. It's, it's either the moving center or the emotions. It has to be... Uh, you have to sense the eye, not as a thought, but as a feeling. You move from thinking to feeling, then it becomes real. He says, mind alone does not constitute a human being. The center of gravity of change is in the moving and emotional centers, but these are concerned only with the present. The mind looks ahead. So the mind, you know, your emotion is always present, isn't it? And your sensation is always present. But the mind looks to the past and the future. The mind, uh, Wordsworth said, poetry is emotion recollected in tranquility. Famous statement. But that, that's an intellectual response. It's emotion recollected, past emotion recollected when you're not in emotion, when you're peaceful. So it shows that it's an intellectual enterprise. To have an emotion is a present enterprise. <clears throat> he says... Um, uh, so these are, these are concerned with the present. The mind looks ahead. The wish to change, to be what one ought to be, must be in our emotional center and the ability to do in our body. The feelings may be strong, but the body is lazy, sunken in inertia. Mind must learn the language of the body and feelings, and this is done by correct observation of the self. One of the benefits of self-remembering is that one has the possibility of making fewer mistakes in life. But for complete self-remembering, all the centers must work simultaneously. You must distinguish between sensation, emotions, and thoughts, and say to each sensation, emotion, and thought, remind me to remember you, 
And for this you must have an I. And you must begin by separating inner things from outer, to separate I from it. <clears throat> so, you know, that same, uh, uh, that same experience of remembering the self, where you move from the intellect to present experience. You think I, and then you move into your feeling body. Let's do that for a moment. We'll meditate in a bit. But you think I, think of yourself I, thought I, and then go into the experience of I in this moment. That's not a thought. It's a feeling or sensation. What does it feel like to be you, I? I. The thought I can point you there, but feel that I. And you can see that you've moved from a concept of I to a sensation of I. And that sensation is present and only present. And if you hold that sensation, an alchemy takes place. And this is all that Ramana taught. People don't understand Ramana's teaching, but all he was saying is get in touch with the feeling of I and hold it. And this is what Nisargadatta also taught. This is what Baba taught when he said, meditate on the self, worship the self. He didn't mean keep thinking about the self. He means feel into the experience of the self here and now. And this was Gurdjieff's teaching as well. Because when you do that, Gurdjieff would say that you build certain chemicals. Baba would say you build shakti. Gurdjieff would say you build an eye, a permanent eye. Baba would say you build steady wisdom. They're all saying the same thing in different ways. You're moving from the mind which jumps around to your beingness, which is profoundly anchored. That's the essence of the teaching. So let's meditate. We'll meditate for 10 minutes and let's begin with that, with that practice. We'll think of I, think of yourself, and bring that thought into your actual experience of what it's like just being you. Here I am, I am. And at least start with that and try to hold that for as much of the time of meditation as you can. And once again, with great love and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart. Let's meditate on this self now for 10 minutes. 